You are listening to the sermon podcast of Connection Church, a gospel-centered community on a mission to make much of Jesus in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. For more information, visit SiouxFallsConnection.com. Thank you for listening. I want to read to you John chapter 14, picking up where we've left off. And I want to hopefully, as is our custom, expand your attention span for the reading of the Bible and even the teaching of the Bible. And so we're going to read it in its entirety, and uh, we're going to pick up where we left off as the Gospel of John has been a journey while John, the beloved, you know, great friend of Jesus, an eyewitness of Jesus, is telling us who Jesus is, inviting all of our questions. And one of the ways we know that John is inviting, for, for example, if you're in the room and maybe, maybe you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, maybe you're in the room and you don't know if you're a Christian and you've got lots of questions, I want to encourage you, I'm so grateful that you're here that in, in many ways, that's why John wrote his gospel. And so he introduces us to Jesus by introducing us, even as we see here, chapter after chapter, people who have questions about Jesus. They're right in front of Jesus, and yet they don't quite fully get Jesus. And that is meant to us for us to be a welcome mat, uh, an entrance into this conversation about Jesus, where we can bring our doubts, our questions, even our skepticism as we are introduced to Jesus by by Jesus' beloved disciple, his friend, John. So beginning in verse 1 of chapter 14, one of the last words, we're in the last week and even the last 24 hours of Jesus' life here on earth. He's speaking to his disciples, words of farewell and departure, beginning in verse 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, Would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Me. If you had known Me, you would have known My Father also. From now on, you do know Him and have seen Him. Philip said to Him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know Me, Philip? Whoever has seen Me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does His works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him you know him for he dwells with you and will be in you 
I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in the Father and you in me and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you, before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. Some of you know that when I was in graduate school, I did contract labor to help pay some bills, worked for a company that did some painting, construction, finished carpentry, all that good stuff. Don't bother asking me to help. I'll just start your project. I won't finish it. I'll leave a mess. I will. Come see my house. But in that, we learned something in in this world of contract work is uh, a job would come up, different managers or contractors would come in and bid the project. And they would basically say, here's what we're going to cover and here's the time frame we intend to do it in. And anytime we would lose a bid, the general sentiment for our company was basically like, who does that person think that he is? How on earth does that guy think that A, he's going to cover this much ground, and B, he's going to do it in this amount of time? And one of two conclusions was typically uh, what we landed on. Either that guy's guy's awesome, he really is the real deal, and we should be like him, or B, that guy's a fool, he doesn't know what he's doing. And so even some of my most beloved preachers, the ones I look up to, typically preach the chapter that I'm preaching through, chapter 14, in four to six Sundays. And so one of two conclusions, either this guy's really good or he doesn't know what he's trying to do. I encourage you it's probably the latter, but let me tell you why. I hope that the pace we set through the Scripture, not only, as I've said, expands and stretches your attention span for the Bible, but I hope also that we set a pace so that you won't miss the great beauty of Jesus. Now, some of you have hiked through the mountains, right? Slowly, painfully enjoying the mountain on the way through. 
But then some of you have maybe flown over the mountain. Maybe you've driven at the precipice of the mountain and you look off and see the broader view. I I want, hopefully, that as we walk through this gospel, we walk fast enough, quickly enough to where we see Jesus for who He really is. And so when we zoom out and see Jesus in this way, the first thing we notice is the setting. Remember, we're in the last week of Jesus' life on earth. We're even now zoomed into, we've slowed down to even the last words of Jesus and the last 24 hours of the life of Jesus on earth, the words he has to his disciples. And the first thing I want you to get is the context. Because remember, if we do this in pieces very slowly, we have to run into what the editors and the, and the, different, the different scribes later infused to the text, which are chapters and verses and numbers. But the break between chapter 13 and chapter 14 is in fact not really there. It's not likely that Jesus would have stopped, said, wait, hang on, and then moved on to the next thing. In fact, chapter 13 and its ending, where Jesus confronts Judas and then even confronts Peter in very subtle ways, leaning in towards them, is the setting for the beginning of chapter 14. So let me read that even to you right now. Beginning in chapter 13, verse 36. While many times I've read these verses in chapter 14 at funerals and encouraging people, don't don't let your hearts be troubled. You, You can believe in God, believe in Him, but trust Jesus. I'm going to prepare a place for you. But but notice the real context that's missed if you don't pick up where John left off. Verse 36, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. And Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself. And where I am, you may be also. Did you get the context of this passage? He's looking at the people who will betray him. He's looking at the people who will fail him. They will let him down. He's not wondering. He's not suspicious. He's not paranoid. He knows for a fact, and we see the story goes on and bears it out. These are the people who will betray him, will abandon him, will disappoint him, will in an hour of his greatest need run off seeking their own interests. And what does he say to the people who are the most likely to betray him, the most likely to abandon him, most likely to leave him naked, hung on an old rugged cross. What does he say? Don't let your heart be troubled. Believe me. Trust me. I've got a place for you. It's set aside for you. And your betrayal cannot ruin it. Your abandonment will not stop it. I know you think you won't, but when you turn from me, I won't return to condemn, but instead... When you turn from me, not if, when you turn from me, don't be troubled. Don't be troubled. I've got a place for you. And so the setting of this entire chapter is speaking to a group of people who will likely let him down, who will surely abandon him when things get difficult. So that, 
you and I can look around this room at a group of people prone to wander as we sang, likely to betray and abandon, likely to turn on Jesus when things are difficult. And what does he say to you and to me? Trust me. Don't be troubled. I've got a place for you. And throughout this chapter, we see the peace and presence of God shown to us in the face of Christ. Specifically, through the scope of this chapter, we see in the face of impending suffering, denial, abandonment, you name it, Jesus offers us the comforts of a home, a loving father, a willingness to listen, an abundant peace, and his very presence. All of them piled into this encouragement that Jesus leaves to those who are going to surely betray him. Let not your hearts be troubled. That's the same phrase that he used the previous chapter when he began to think about what he was about to endure. He said I'm, he was troubled in his own heart, and yet he submitted to the glory that God was going to bring. But the first word of encouragement he brings is the, I'll, I'll make up a word here, the, the placeness of the comfort of Jesus. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. I'm going to go prepare a place, and then I'm going to come again. I'm going to prepare a place for you. Now, two things here. The first one, I think, is this. There, has, there seems to have never been a society more afraid of death than ours. There's never been a society more afraid of death than ours. How can you tell? Well, there's many ways, but I'll just give you the one main one. There has never been a society more afraid of aging than ours. There have never been more products, schemes to keep you young. Like, I mean, that's, that's, the, that's the underlying idol and thing that we worship is youth. To be young is to be alive. To not be young is to die. And so we go to great lengths in our society to prevent and to fight aging, especially even in a superficial society like ourselves, to prevent the appearance of aging. And underneath that is what? A denial of death. And what does Jesus offer here? He offers us a comfort, a peace, in the face of certain death. Now, I've already told you this before. In this room, the majority of you do not believe me when I say you're going to die. At least, at the very least, you believe I'm talking to someone else. I'm not going to die anytime soon. You see, in Eastern cultures, specifically like Japanese cultures, we, they, they avoid death by not talking about it and not asking about it. And, it's, and you'll see this in those cultures where you, you, you'll see the, the kind of the, the feel that it is often impolite or disrespectful to ask about or to speak about the deceased. To talk about dead, the dead, the people who have died before us, is, is impolite. We don't do that. And so through meditation and prayer, we kind of sort through that. But it's, it's very impolite to speak of it. In fact... It's very common in, for Japanese doctors to not speak about the prognosis of a particular disease. That is, how many years or days or months you have to survive. And Eastern cultures deny death. They feel the same weight of it that we do. And they avoid that death by not talking about it and not asking about it. We deny death by suing doctors for death. We deny death by always needing someone to blame. It's as if we're saying anytime anyone dies ever, it was a mistake. It wasn't meant to be, and it's someone's fault. 
And anytime anyone is injured, anytime anything like it kills someone else, we immediately run to blame someone, sue someone. Right? The next time some disaster happens, so, well, we're going to look for someone to blame, right? And depending on your political persuasion, you will find a way to blame the government for a particular thing. Depending on your socioeconomic status, you will find someone to kind of, kind of point the finger at. And at the very least, you'll say, this wouldn't have been as bad. But don't miss what's really going on. You're denying and avoiding death. Underneath that, underneath that desire and drive to blame, Underneath that desire is a subtle belief that I'm never going to die. No one's going to die. Someone's to blame for this death. It's built on this assumption that we're entitled to live. How long you say, I don't know. We deny that death by looking for someone to blame. And as we have created a society in pursuit of comfort, now we are in a time of such low tolerance for pain that the words of Jesus here that offer us comfort are often missed. Don't miss this. In the face of suffering, in the face of death, for these people, Jesus offers comfort. The first comfort he offers, the second part of this, not only that he comforts us in spite of death, but he comforts us with a placeness. I'll unpack that made-up word, right? We are local people. We are very low, and we, we are obsessed even with our place and our location. And we have a concept of home and a concept of a comfortable location that's built into the way that God has wired us. It's not a bad thing. In fact, that's exactly, I believe, how God has intrinsically built into us this, this image of himself and a longing for Eden, a place where things are better and we are in the presence of God. Now, there are lots of weird ways that we see this homesickness that some of you may feel. Now, we've tried to distract ourselves from that. We're the most mobile society that's ever lived. And so we find other ways to, to convince ourselves that we belong. And so on a regular basis, we talk about this, that in the New Testament, people regularly lifted up their, their comfortable uh, you know, sense of home and went to where God calls them, right? And the weird thing is in our society, it's very common for, for someone to say, I'm moving for one of two reasons, work or family. But if you say you're moving because God has given you a new home, whether you're talking about Abraham or the apostles, you're on really uncharted territory, aren't you? But we love home and we will try to find a way to justify where our sense of home is. Now, I noticed this when I was a pastor of a church, an established church, hopefully trying to lead it back to new life. Uh, I did something, and I've, I heard a mentor of mine say something about this, reminded of me of this even this week. I did something to make room for some of the people we were actually beginning to grow and to make room uh, for some of the people that wanted to sit in the back who were guests so we didn't want to make them sit on the front row. I had the great idea of asking people that they might move forward, just like a few minutes ago, move forward from their beloved pew and closer to the middle to make room for people. And wouldn't you know, I committed a sacrilegious act. Wouldn't you know that those pews were actually the belongings of people? Why? We are, we are people of location, of comfort. 
Now, that isn't meant to be like a, a, a broad indictment to you, but I would encourage you. Is it possible that you love the comfort of that location, even to the detriment of the hospitality you might demonstrate for others? Let me hit this as hard as I can. Is your home your castle, or is it an outpost for the kingdom of God? Is it your refuge that you use to hide from the other? Or is it a fort in hostile territory meant to demonstrate the gospel hospitality to people in occupied territory. You get it? How you understand your placeness affects the way, I'm not looking at anyone particularly, affects where you sit right now, probably if you sit there all the time. Or, at the very least, affects the hospitality, the, the willingness, the willingness to be imposed upon for the sake of a greater glory. And what does Jesus offer? He offers this place. So you and I, who, 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 who love having a place, we love having a place to settle down in. And so if some, so if some of you, like, for instance, you're, you're constantly on the run because you think that over the rainbow you're going to find that place. Or some of you, everywhere you go, you're fighting, fighting every itch to leave because you're like, I put so much effort into making this place comfortable. Look what Jesus says. Look, that desire for the place, that desire for a, a comfortable location is met. It's granted to you. I'm going to go make a place for you. That word, is, that word rooms, as I read in the ESV, it's, it's hard to demonstrate. More literally, it means just like home or a, a place of dwelling. So that's why some of the translations will say mansions. That's not wrong. But simply put, the Father knows that we are people that are local. And Jesus has gone to prepare a place. Now, He's not making an episode for HGTV where he's building or remodeling or flipping some house. Instead, we realize here that by his going, he's going to accomplish something for us. He says, I'm going to leave and I'm prepare a place. And it is by his leaving. What leaving, you might ask? Well, John tells us it's the lifting up, the being raised up, his betrayals, crucifixion, his resurrection, and then his exaltation and ascension back to the Father. It's by his leaving that he has made it possible for us to dwell in the presence of God. As you walk through the Gospels and as you walk through the rest of the Bible, you'll see this, right? Isn't that one of the most comforting things of the 23rd Psalm, the shepherd's Psalm? That one day I will go and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Later, David says, look, look, better is just one day in his presence than a thousand elsewhere. And, and even Paul tells the Thessalonians, look, he's going he's gonna to come back and then we will go and be with him forever. I know some of you are afraid because you feel homeless and displaced. Can I encourage you? That feeling isn't meant to leave you in despair. That feeling is meant to remind you it's meant to pose a question. Have you ever wondered why you always feel homeless everywhere you go? Some of you know this. Like when you return home, whatever that is, the, your hometown. It, it went and changed while you were gone. And it's not near as inviting as it used to be. Is it possible that it never was? Is it possible that that longing inside of you for home, the deep comforts of certain surroundings is actually the image of God our Father manifesting itself, leading us 
leading us to desire this thing that only Jesus can satisfy. His departure was for their benefit. A side note here, I can't walk through a a picture of heaven without saying this often. Many times we talk about heaven in strictly consumeristic, individualistic uh, kinds of terms. And so I I say this, there was a, a hymn that that churches would sing. It was a popular hymn in the 50s and 60s, and it was called, I've Got a Mansion Over the Hilltop. And many churches would sing this, and the problem with it is, and why we don't sing it, frankly, um, is it never mentions God or Jesus in the whole thing. Right? Now, I often travel, not often, but I I travel enough, and I'm mopey and weepy when I'm gone because I want to go back home. And as much as I'd like to think I'm an adventurer and I'm really brave, I really just, when I'm, when I'm away or my family's away, I just want to go home. And I find myself going, I wish I could just sit on my couch. I wish I could watch my TV. I wish I could be in my own bed with my own pillow. But when I'm hanging around with people in that sense of longing, I don't say, you know what I really miss? I really just want my pillow. I really just want my bed. I really just want my recliner. I really just want my couch. You know why I really want to go home? Because of who lives there. I miss my people. And don't, don't miss this. The glory of heaven is not some sort of creature comfort. The glory of heaven is who's there. And so we come home not to a comfortable couch, although that's great, right? This, the, right the crystal sea, the, the, the pavement made of gold. Just make sure you understand the pavement made of gold the Bible teaches of is meant to say how stupid our creature comforts are. Our creature comforts are pavement. What's beautiful in this city is the glory of Jesus. The revelation tells us that glory is so great we won't even need a son anymore. The glory of heaven, the place that he's preparing, is not the comfort of the rooms, although it will be great. No eye is seen, no ear is heard. It's going to be amazing, beyond what you could ask or imagine. But the most amazing thing is who's going to meet us there. He says, I'm going to come back and I'm going to take you there. Thomas said, we we don't even know where you're going. How do we know the way? And Jesus points us to the second thing. You're not just the the placeness, if you will, the comfort of the comfort that Jesus gives us, but also the personhood. You see, more than any other thing on the earth, man, there's no religion like this. There's no one who makes these claims, these radical statements. What does Jesus say? We don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And he's like, no, you know the way. You don't think you know the way, but I'm making a way and you know the way. And that way is what? A person. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. Now this, this harkens back to the entirety of the Old Testament in many ways. Psalm 119.30, I have chosen what? The way of faithfulness. I have set your rules before me. Isaiah 40, we saw this in the beginning of the Gospel of John. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for God. Get that? Like, Make central South Dakota I-90 where the mountains used to be. Flat, straight, set the cruise, get in the back seat. I mean, it's the, make a perfect broad way. No one has made such a radical claim. And Jesus comes along and says, I am that way. Why? Because one of the other cravings that you and I have is for relationship. It's to be really known, to be really valued. And we saw this a few weeks ago. One of the greatest joys and the greatest fear are wrapped up in this broken world here. Where so many of you right now, your greatest desire is that you would just be known. That someone would just see you. 
and no longer look through you, but see you and know you. But in there lies your greatest fear of being found out. Someone would actually see you and know you for who you are. What does Jesus say? You are fully known, and then you are received and given access to the Father. He connects himself to the Father. Again, verse 7, if you'd known me and you'd known the Father, and from now on, you do know him and you've seen him. Philip's like, just show us the Father. Would you just show us the Father? Now this is interesting because this is, this is probably poking at a lot of father wounds that many of you have. That probably inform the way that you relate to everyone and you don't even realize it. It probably informs your political persuasion and you don't even know it. Many of you were given so much permission that you feel abandoned and neglected. You're neglected children. And many of you were given so much attention and, and strict discipline that you were abused and you feel abused by the Father. And you look at Jesus in the same way that Philip does and they say, no, 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 show me the Father. And half of you were like, no, 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 no. You're too nice to be my dad. And half of you were like, no, 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 you care too much about me to be my dad. You pay too close attention. Or for some of you, maybe like you're, you're too distant to be my dad. You're not permissive enough to be my dad. Don't miss that. Philip says it. Look, he looks at Jesus and he's like, no, 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 no. This doesn't add up. You don't really add up to what my father is. We just show us the father. And Jesus says, look, have I, have I not been with you for a long time? You still don't know me? If you've seen me, you've seen the father. Let that just blow your mind for a minute. Jesus is not wrathful in some half measure and gracious in the other half. He is fully just and fully gracious. He is fully righteous and fully merciful. And let that just settle over you as a warm blanket for those of you like me who maybe have a deep father wound, a chip on your shoulder that takes you everywhere you go. If you've seen the Father, or excuse me, if you've seen the Son, Jesus, you've seen the Father. And this is good for us, isn't it? Jesus doesn't let us down like our father, Adam. He's the true and better Adam. He's the better father. He's the better patriarch. All the gifts of the father without being a patriarchal kinds of dad. All the kindness of a parent without being permissive or neglectful. This is important. He, since the first chapter, he's been sharing with us how he and the Father are one. This is important for one quick reason, right? If something breaks, you can take it to the repairman, but if you really need it fixed, you've got to take it to the manufacturer, right? For it to be refurbished or, who get a new one. And that's what Jesus has been saying all along. He was there for the creation. He's there one with the creator so that you and I... You and I will know whatever is broken, the manufacturer can fix. And Jesus is, is showing us that the authority to fix and refurbish and remanufacture, make all things new by God is made visible in what he's going to do for us. He's going to make straight that way. This is good because some of you miss out on God because you think God is just a, like a, a set of rules set aside to make you miserable. But he's not. He's a father. And he's a better father than any of the ones that you, have, and you and I have ever had. 
Beginning in 12, he says, Truly I say to you now, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. Now, now I want to stop real quickly on that phrase, whoever believes. Now, this is interesting because most of the time when we read the Bible, we think all the blessings are really set aside for like varsity level Christians, like professional Christians. But this phrase is common, especially in the Gospel of John. That phrase is common for John and it should grab your attention. It means that this is not for varsity level believers. This is whoever believes. Chapter 6, whoever believes in me, what? Shall never thirst again. Chapter 7, whoever believes out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Chapter 11, whoever believes though he die, yet he shall live. John chapter 12, whoever believes in me will not remain in darkness. And now what he says, look, if you believe in me, you'll start to look like me. You'll start to do the things that I do. You'll do the works that I do. In fact, it says that Whoever, they'll do the works that I do. And then this is the, the crazy, plays, cra crazy phrase. The greater works than these will he do. Greater works. Greater works. And don't miss that. Up to this point, John has told us that Jesus has done no less than seven signs, miraculous works, so that we would see the nature of of Jesus. And Jesus says, it's is found elsewhere in the Gospels as well. Like, when I leave and go to the Father, it's actually going to be for your benefit. Did you say that? You should rejoice that I leave because you're going to do greater things. Greater things? What's that going to do? I mean, isn't Jesus just calling us to, like, believe and, and then, then declare the good news of his saving work to the nations? Isn't that all Jesus is doing? And look what he says. That's a greater thing. That is a greater thing. Don't miss this. Declaring the gospel and people repenting and believing is a greater miracle than Lazarus being raised from the dead. One of the, my, uh, one of the best places is illustrated, remember? In, in, in the synoptic gospels, especially Matthew, even Mark, there's a man who can't walk and what do his friends do? Pick up his mat, rip a hole in the ceiling and drop him in. Right? Rule number one, real friends take their friends to Jesus, right? But the cool thing you see here is when Jesus sees the man, he's interrupted in the middle of his teaching, he says something. He says, my son, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. Now that would be like me going up the hill to the state penitentiary and saying, you're free to go. What would be the first thing you or anyone else would ask? Who are you? What authority do you have? Who died and made you judge? You don't have that power. And so they were muttering those things about Jesus because Jesus looked at this man who couldn't walk and he said, your sins are forgiven. And they started to mutter those same questions. Who could forgive sin but God alone? Only God can forgive sin. And what does Jesus say? Helping us understand every single one of his miracles. What does he say? So that you will know that the Son of Man has the authority to forgive son sins on earth, you get up, take your mat, and go. Do you see that? The, the miracle of being able to walk, of his health being restored, was simply a backdrop. It was an introduction, an appetizer, if you will, for the greater miracle of being right before God. So don't miss that. The greater works. Like One of the things I, I think we, we really hunger for, we're like, man, if, if I could just see a miracle, and friend, Here's what's going on. You have no idea what a great miracle it has been for Jesus to save you. And one of the greatest ways we minimize our sin is because we keep wanting some greater sign, some greater provision. And what are we really saying? Well, it's not that big a deal for you to forgive me. 
What I really need you to do is give me this job, give me this relationship, to restore this health. And what are you saying? What are you saying? That the state of all these things is greater than the state of your soul. Friend, don't miss the miracle here. It took, on one hand, it took the work of the Son of God to save you. You were that bad. It took the work of the Son of God. That's what it took. No one else could do it. God had to do it for you. And what happens after that is we experience joy. We realize, wow. Can it be that I should gain in this? What? A vile sinner like me would be called to the Father? Don't miss that. He says, look, this is right after he finished all of his signs and he raised Lazarus from the dead. But you've got to see the truth in that, don't you? You see, if he only just brought Lazarus back to life, that wouldn't be any good. It wouldn't be any help. Why? Because Lazarus is going to die again. He needs someone who's going to save him, not just from physical death, but eternal death. And he says, you will have everything you need to do greater works. You will be able to do this. You will be able to point people to Jesus. You will be able to declare the good news of God's saving grace, and it will be a greater miracle than anything Jesus has performed. Here's what I think this might set you free from. I know many of you wallow in and are defined by self-pity. And the source of that is a belief that your forgiveness before God is not that big a deal, and you don't owe him much. And here's what we find. The fact that you are in this room, the fact that your eyes may have been opened to this glorious good news of what Jesus has done on your behalf is a greater miracle than Lazarus coming back from the dead. Because even when Lazarus came from the dead, and even when that thing that you're praying for maybe gets healed or restored, guess what you'll still need? You'll need help from inside of a tomb six feet under. This is the hope that he offers. And this will free you from things like self-pity because you'll realize, oh my goodness, do you know what I deserve? I deserve hell. I deserve punishment because a perfect and holy God has expected something of me that I cannot do. I deserve awful things. Oh my goodness, but I don't have them. Instead, I have hope. I have have the ability to see through this suffering to the hope that's on the other side. Here's the second thing he offers. He says, whatever you ask now in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Now what we see here is the power and the purpose and even what I would say is like the protection in prayer. Yes, I know there's a bunch of P's in there. I hope you'll forgive me. But you see the power of prayer. Now just connect the dots in this, in this chapter, right? At the very beginning of this chapter, we see a picture of this comfort and this relationship that Jesus is offering. And then at the end of the chapter, there's the presence of God through his spirit that gives them peace. Peace without measure. But what's the connecting factor in this chapter? What's the logic that's followed in this chapter. Jesus is going to prepare a place and he's going to comfort us through his spirit. How is that going to be connected? Did you catch it? By the things we ask in his name. Asking the Father for his glory and by the name of Jesus is the means for releasing his presence into the world. God has in some mysterious fashion enabled you and me to release his presence through prayer. What we ask of him. That's its power. But notice its purpose. Now, if you're like me, when you read that phrase, 
your eyes gravitated to these few things, right? The whatever you ask, and then anything. Is that what you gravitated toward? I know I did. What, whatever I want, Jesus? Whatever? Ask anything and you'll do it? That's what I gravitated toward. But notice that isn't, that isn't what's being communicated. That, that isn't the thing. And again, that's just us being good Westerners and good consumers. We're like, ooh, toys, right? Like, like we, ooh, give us the stuff, right? But notice the purpose, the structure of that sentence. That isn't even the central theme. Whatever you ask, and now we see this, the, the purpose and the protection of prayer. The purpose is for what? I will do that. I will do, and then that word that in verse 13, literally so that, in order that, what? The Father may be glorified in the Son. The purpose of prayer isn't only to get whatever you ask. The purpose of prayer is to get whatever you ask that will glorify the Father and the Son. If you ask me anything, if you ask me anything in what? In my name. And so we gravitate towards the whatever and the anything when we're meant to gravitate towards the in order that the Father may be glorified and in the name of the Son, Jesus. Now that's important because you'll get stuck on that. We see the whatever you ask and we see this as a way of getting things from God and we're, and we're discontent because we don't get the thing we want and we overlook the so that God may be glorified or in the name of the Son. You see, the purpose is the glory of the Father in Jesus. Now you'll ask, why doesn't it seem to be working? Well, it's possibly that what you're asking for doesn't really have an emphasis on the most glorious thing, that is Jesus. The whatever we ask is ultimately for the glory of the Father. That's the purpose. But notice in that is the protection that God gives us in prayer. The protection is for his glory and in his name. Let me illustrate that. Every time you hear this like mythological parable, if you will, of what? The genie and the lamp. It's always like a parable of how people are really awful. Have you ever noticed that? The genie comes out, I'll give you three wishes, right? And then whatever happens next, however that story is told, it's like this chaos that ensues because what the person asked for was ridiculous. And it ended up causing more harm than good. That's what that parable is. It's a revelation of how our own corrupt desires, how they're not really for our good. Think of it this way. God gives us a safety net in prayer. And he grants us that which is good for his glory, our joy, and for his name's sake. Just ask yourself this. When you were were a toddler, what would you have asked the genie in the lamp for? What would you have wanted? When you were 15 years old, what would you have wished for? What would you have wanted? Ten years ago, what would you have wished for and what would you have wanted? When I was young, I really wished my parents would have just bought me a whole bunch of fireworks, artillery shells to be exact. And thankfully, my father did not, in an unbridled manner, shower me with artillery shells, although I wanted them. Why? Because even a bad parent gives things for the good of their children. And so also we see here, the thing that you wanted, the thing that you think is best, may not actually be the thing that brings God glory and you joy, because ultimately it's for your own namesake. And a Christian 
sees the genie out of the lamp, and when they're presented with a wish for whatever we want, a Christian does what? A Christian goes, whoa, 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 no, no, no. I, I'm not wishing for anything. I know if I wish for something, it will destroy me and the people around me. The only thing I'm going to wish for are the things that will glorify God and point us to the goodness of the, the, the name of His Son, Jesus. That's what a Christian will do. Because a Christian knows that in the depths of our own heart, the things that we want are ultimately things that will lead to our demise. I want a mountain of chocolate. For me, I want a truckload of fireworks. Whatever that thing is for you. I want friends. I want pleasure. I want comfort. And thank God He's built a protection into what He's asking. He's going to grant us the things necessary for His glory, our joy, and His namesake. And a parent, instead of giving those things, a parent does what? Hey, I can give you better joys. There's better things. I know you can't see them right now. I know it doesn't seem that way but I have better joys for you. The, the last part there, that in His name, that's especially important. This is especially important. Jesus shows us that the thing that we are meant to do when we come to ask Him and the Father for things is to recognize that our only hope before the Father is His name. That's what we're saying. It's not some like uh, little incantation that at the end of a prayer we go, in Jesus' name, and God's like, oh man, I wasn't going to give it to him, but they said in Jesus' name, and shucks, now i got to give it to him. That's not how that works. What we're saying when we say in Jesus' name, listen to what we're saying. We're saying, Father, I have no merit to approach you. There's nothing in me that deserves anything from you. Standing on my own two feet, I have nothing to offer. There's no benefit you gain by giving me anything, but because of the name of Jesus, because of His work on my behalf, I have standing and I can approach the throne with boldness. That's what we're saying. Now this is important. This means that for many of you, maybe if you have questions about Christianity, get this one. Jesus is not an example or a teacher. He's not primarily that. In fact, if He is only an example, He's terrible. Do you know why? Some of you know what this feels like. He'll crush you. He'll crush you. If Jesus is only a teacher, he will crush you. You'll never measure up. If he's only an example, you, even now, you're, I, I can't measure up. I can't do it. But what is he saying? My standing is the person and work of Jesus. He says this even goes on. Look, I'm, I'm going to, did you catch this? In verse 16, I'm going to give you another helper. That word helper is an advocate. Uh, paraclete, paraklesos. Just like the ecclesia, the church, or the called out people, the, the paraclete, the paraklesos is the one who's called alongside us. He's going to be present with us, alongside us, with us, and in us. But notice that word there, another. Another advocate. What's he saying? He's saying, first and foremost, Jesus is not just an example and a teacher. He's what? He's an advocate. He stands between you and the Father. He stands between you and the wrath that we deserve. He bears the brunt himself so that now all we experience is what? Adoption. The ability to say, you're my Father. And the other helper, the next helper is, in many ways, the, the, the intercessor, the advocate that's going to be with us. 
He says this helper is going to come and he gives a list of things that we believe the Holy Spirit does for us. I want to point out just one. Jesus promises the trustworthiness of the New Testament scriptures. Did you catch what the Holy Spirit will do specifically? Now this is important, I think, for many of you in this room who maybe you're like, man, why should we even believe the Bible? Is it trustworthy? And, and it's, it's, you're kind of like, well, should I trust all the people? Should I even trust John? Should I trust John and what he wrote? Should I, wrote, should I trust the Apostle Paul? And here's what I would tell you, no. No. Should I trust all the people who copy these manuscripts? No, you shouldn't. You know you should trust? The Holy Spirit who is at work in them. And that same Holy Spirit that guided them guides us as we read it 2,000 years later. I mean, never mind that we have thousands more manuscripts of New Testament passages than we do any of, any of uh, William Shakespeare's plays. But like, we have this reliable thing. Why? It's evidence of the Holy Spirit. These words went in several different continents, several different directions, several different languages, and we now have them compiled here and they all match. Should you trust all those people? No. In fact, that's how they protected themselves from even modern heresies like old Gnosticism. You know what Gnosticism, right? Some of the Gospels, like the Gospel of Thomas, were eliminated from the text, were eliminated from canons of Scripture. Why? Because they appealed to some secret knowledge. Some secret knowledge. I, I know in myself. I know who I am and what's true. I can say what's real and right for me. We call it now my truth. He spoke his truth. She spoke her truth. Don't miss that. Modern day old school heresy. Well, what's our protection? What's to protect us from that false hope? The Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit is going to remind us. Hey, that, that, you know, that doesn't seem right. I hear what you're saying, but that, does, that doesn't seem like it lines up with who Jesus is. Don't miss where this leaves us. Follow this text all the way to the end. Connect all the dots. In Christ, you have a home. You have a father. You have a sufficient provision. You have an encourager, and you have an immeasurable peace. He says, I'm going to give you peace. What kind of peace? The kind of peace like my relationship gives? The kind of peace like my boss or my job, my vocation gives, the kind of peace that I really wanted to get from that thing that didn't deliver. What did he say? No, man, I don't give, I don't give peace like those people, and those structures, and those things gives peace. I give peace not like they measure. I give in perfect measure. And now that I go to the Father, now that I'm lifted up, now that I take your place on the cross, you will have everything you need, everything you desire, friend, I know you feel like a wanderer at times and you feel homeless and you feel like you don't belong. In Christ, you have a home. I know at times you feel like an orphan. I know you feel like you're unloved, unwanted. But Jesus says, in me, you have a father. I know you feel helpless and like you're lacking. Jesus says, in me you have everything you need. I know you feel lonely. And he says, in me you have a comforter. You have an encourager. I know you feel like things are out of control and chaotic. But in me, there is peace. Today, what are the commands, he says, that we begin to experience out of love for him? Believe. Receive. Abide. In Christ, you have a home. You are homeless no more. You are an orphan no more. You are abandoned and neglected no more. You are no longer the victim and 
of spite and anger. You are no longer living in chaos. You have peace in Christ. Friend, would you believe? Would you receive? Turn from the thing you're currently looking to to give you a sense of home and relationship and comfort and peace and see that the peace that Jesus offers in Himself has no measure. It will be the thing, even in the face of betrayal, failure, that allows our hearts not to be troubled. It will be the thing that gives us peace, even in the midst of chaos. Might we receive and believe and abide in these things today? Let's pray together. God, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you so much that it does not abandon us to silence, but instead it is living and active and, and pierces our heart to apply just exactly what we need. Father, I confess the, the weakness of even my own words to, to communicate that, and so I, I claim this promise for your name in this chapter that your words will ultimately be the ones that are called to mind by your Spirit. Do that now, Holy Spirit. Begin to enliven our hearts and ears and eyes to behold Jesus and to hear his words in a way that no human could possibly do. Maybe for those of us who are longing for comfort and we're looking for it in so many different places, we're looking for a relationship and either through hiding from it or, or running from it or running to it, we, we're, we're in this rat race. Would you begin to show us in Christ? We have a home. We have a father. We are orphans no more. Maybe for some of us that we're just, we feel entitled and, and we're overwhelmed with pity because we haven't realized what a great thing you've done for us in your name. That you are the advocate we did not deserve, but now you are the one who makes intercession for us, pleading on our behalf. Would that become real and alive for us today? That we would have joy and peace. For those of us in this room, we just need comfort. Would you be that for us today? Would you be this comforter? Would you fulfill this promise to come near and alongside each and every one of us? Each of us in this room who suffer and who hurt, some by our own sins and some by the sins of others, would you come alongside us and grant us the encouragement and comfort that, Lord, only you can do? Jesus, give us this. You are our only hope and peace. Amen.